From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. This week, we're talking to Braun Daler, drummer from metal powerhouse Mastodon. We follow his career from the founding of the band to showing up on Game of Thrones. I got stabbed in the stomach and my throat slit about 30 times in a row by <laughs> a sweet young Hungarian man. Plus, Greg, hard to believe, but we have somehow made it to our 666th episode, which means we've got to do songs about the devil. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions. It is show number 666, the 666th show of Sound Opinions. Uh, It is a big number in in metal circles. It's a big number in Rosemary's Baby, The Omen, The Sign of the Devil. And what better way to start this show than with a giant of the metal scene, Mastodon. Mastodon has been one of the most acclaimed metal bands of the past two decades with the same lineup as on their first album. Bassist Troy Sanders, guitarist Brett Hines, and Bill Kelleher, and drummer Braun Daler. We spoke with Braun Daler about the band's whole career from uh, forming in Atlanta, Georgia, to their latest album, Emperor of Sand. Now, the album was inspired by a real-life tragedy. I mean, three-fourths of the band was dealing with some form of cancer in their family. But like a lot of metal, the band uses fantastical imagery in their songwriting to convey this sense of some grim reality. So we started by asking about how the band relates to that M word. I think it's insulting when people say this, although they mean it as a compliment. Uh But Mastodon is the thinking person's metal band, right? The metal band for people who don't like metal. Right, uh-huh. which I think is putting down this entire genre and shows how limited people are. You know, they say the same thing about High on Fire. Right. right. Yeah. It seemed to me you've always set out to, this is metal, we are metal. Stop putting a label on it. Stop worrying about whether it's cool or not. I mean, that's all been part of, I think, what you were trying to do, or no? Uh, not literally. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was no, no, like we're going to change what people think about metal. Absolutely not. You know, we're just really taking the evolution of all of our musical past and throwing it in the pot, you know, and we've found something that really clicks and we want to explore it as, as much as we can, you know, yeah. and we want to, we don't want to put any limitations on it. Yeah. And that's really all it is. It's rooted in heavy music because that's where we all cut our teeth as young teens playing in our parents' basements. Yeah. It was all rooted in Metallica and, you know, just early punk rock and mm-hmm. all that good stuff. But then there's the, you know, the history that all of us bring that's even before that that's more informed by maybe our parents' music mm. that we also love. Myself being the all the early prog stuff of the Genesis and King Crimson and Yes. You know, Stevie Wonder, David Bowie. 
you know who I All that. And then you have Brent and Troy with the, the early country stuff, you know, where you got Waylon and George Jones and Chet Atkins for Brent, you know, and just all the, the major players in the, you know, Jerry Reed. The chicken picking amazing guitar players that he weaves into what we're doing, you know, and sure. that's like one of the things that really set us apart, you know, and then my playing is sort of all over the place and I guess maybe, you know, it's, I'm kind of looking to the jazz guys or the fusion guys for my inspiration, mm-hmm. whether it be Billy Cobham, Elvin Jones, Tony Williams, or, or not that I'm on any kind of par with those guys, but I just borrowed from them enough, their sensibilities of how to approach the instrument, how to play around the one and do that kind of stuff. Intertwine that with with Bill and and his kind of punk rock, you know, straight ahead stuff, yeah. you know, and and it's the perfect little melting pot of styles, but it's viewed as heavy metal in it, you know, and a heavy metal is probably one of the healthiest genres that exists. It's got so many different subgenres and it's so many insanely talented people that are up there on a level with with jazz musicians, you know what I mean? Some of these these kids that are out there today just pushing the envelope of ability. Mm-hmm. And what I meant is that it works. We can find you on the bill at Pitchfork, and we can find you with a hardcore metal bill, right? And, yeah. and it's just like, at this point, seven albums in, it's just Mastodon music. Yeah, I mean, I get the same feeling from Slayer that I get from Stevie Wonder that I get from Mozart, you know? So it's, mm-hmm. it's, you get that feeling mm-hmm. from music. It's something that pulls at you, or, or it can uh, bring you to tears, or it can bring you the, the most joy you've ever felt in your life, you know? So it's, uh, it's just a feeling, and it, it doesn't matter the genre. It's, it's whatever pulls at your heartstrings, I guess, or gets you out of bed. seem to be have a kind of a mission since you started in the early 2000s the four of you came together yeah two of you from upstate new york right, right. moving to atlanta and meeting the other two members of the band right and it sounded like you had a connection almost instantly with those four guys it wasn't like you had to do a lot of woodshedding to figure out whether or not this was going to work or not right yeah i guess i was expecting moving to a new city i'd never been there before i was assured that it was cool you know my friend bill who is in Mastodon. We played in a band in the early 90s in Rochester called Lethargy, which was like a very technical heavy metal band that was sort of Mr. Bungley, kind of just weird, you know, off kilter, kind of like the early 90s was allowed to, to be. Mm-hmm. A little Zappa or Primus in your metal. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But we also played in a band called Today's the Day together. 
Bill's wife, uh, at the time it was his girlfriend, she, out of college, had gotten a job at the CDC in Atlanta, and we spent just a couple years in that group together, and so we just wanted our something we could call our own, and, and Bill also wanted to move down where his, his lady was. Mm-hmm. It's uh, understandable. Yeah, and uh, I didn't really have a lady or any ties to anything really, you know, and uh, I just had my little hefty bag of clothes and a couple of VHS tapes, and that <laughs> and was pretty a, much it. And a drum set. <laughs> and a drum set, yeah. yeah. Uh, we ended up moving down there January 1st of 2000, and I really thought it was going to take a while to find some people. There wasn't really anything like what we were doing, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, but, Atlanta was exploding in hip-hop. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? For but, sure. But, but the rock scene, you're saying, wasn't happening? No, the rock scene was happening, just wasn't in the vein of what we were mm. really doing, you know, which... I think kind of lent itself to our sound. We found we found a couple guys that were doing something different, you know. Mm-hmm. So we met about two weeks in. I think we I met those guys. We were at a, a house show. This house called the Parasite House that had shows in the basement. <laughs> mm-hmm. Ended up there to see a band called High on Fire, and oh, uh, which became later really close friends and mm-hmm. touring yeah. buddies. But I went to go see them with Bill and uh, met Brent and Troy. Their band was the opening band called Four Hour Fogger. And I met Brent and we hit it off instantly. He said, our singer is just about to leave town. This is our last show, so let's get together and jam. So we did and, uh, you know, sparks flew. The rest is history. The rest is history. What were those musical uh, connections that you were looking for and found when you met Troy and Brent? I wasn't really sure what I was looking for. I just, I needed to hear it, you know, yeah. uh, and feel it, really. You know, you get into a room with some people, it's really like, a, the, the best way to describe it is uh, like any other relationship, like a, like when I met my wife or like when you when you meet somebody that's uh, going to be an important and pivotal person in your, your life, you know, you just, you just have that. Mm-hmm that pull, you know, and uh, just hearing the juxtaposition between Brent and Bill's guitar playing, it just really felt like something that I hadn't heard before and something I really liked mm-hmm. and something we all liked. Everybody in the room, you know, was, we just had that sort of, I don't know, magical moment, I guess you could say, where the when we were playing, it was just locking in and, you know, everybody's showing each other their arm hair standing up for certain <laughs> riffs, you know, and you're just like, yeah. I love this, you know, this is like, this is worth pursuing for sure, you know. So it was really an incredible moment for for me personally and for everybody involved. We were just really excited about it, and that excitement hasn't worn off to this day. We're just always uh, full steam ahead. Plus, you know, meeting guys that, that want to tour, that want to lay it all out there and and go for it and really do it, you know, regardless of the outcome.
so Ron, you're a you're a great drummer, but also you're you, you write a lot of lyrics, which you don't normally associate with drummers like being, you know, the brainchild of the lyrics in the in the group necessarily. Neil Peart or well, uh, Neil Peart Rush, made made know. it okay for yeah. us to be <laughs> yeah. able to, to yeah. you know. When you find out that he did that, yeah. it's like, well, why can't yeah. I do that? I have ideas. I'm not just sitting back here. <laughs> And you're thinking big. I mean, with Emperor of Sand, you're creating these elaborate metaphors to deal with uh, Troy's wife and your mother and Bill's mother all having cancer. Even on your second record, uh, Leviathan, you're riffing on Moby Dick. All these is a concept album. The, the, the incredibly elaborate stories going on. Was that there from the start? I mean, when you came into the band, had you been writing lyrics before this for your previous projects? Yeah, I wrote lyrics for Lethargy. I wrote some lyrics. I never considered myself a writer or anything like that, but... I help, you know, I chip in where necessary, if it's, if need be. With all of us, we need each other to make an album. We need each other, and we want to need each other, you mm-hmm. know, to get to get that final result, to have it be like a band in the true sense of the word, you know. So we we don't want somebody that's just controlling and and is in charge and just does everything, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but well, set the scene for me. You guys are jamming, you know. You take a break. Everybody sits down, and has a beer. Are you talking about the ideas for an album like Leviathan? I usually pitch it mm-hmm. if it's an idea I have. Mm-hmm. I get it all together, and I almost do a presentation with each member just to sort of, not necessarily sell it, but say, here's, the, here's my idea. What do you think? You know, mm. that's, that's all. And I have an outline of the idea, and I say, this is why I think it would be cool. This is what I think the artwork could look like. This is all the different things aesthetically that we can tie into it. And you have free reign on your lyrics that you write. You're not confined to anything, but if we could keep it within this realm, that mm. would be awesome. Two seconds ago, Greg, he's yeah. telling us, I'm not a writer. Now you're like an English professor in yeah. college. Yeah. Your thesis not. will be... I no, no, no. I can no, see no, the no. little multi... All right, Troy, I've got my multimedia presentation for right, you yeah, right He takes now. out the PowerPoint, and he's got the pointer, yeah, the laser right. pointer. Well, yeah. you know, for me, it all, for lyric writing purposes... I see a movie in my head that like every riff that comes out of Brent's fingers or Bill's mm. fingers, you know, I can just see something happening and it's get like this vision of something. So it's so much easier for me to be able to write a whole outline out and say, okay, this is our protagonist and this is, you know, this is what's happening here and then just start to fill it all in like that. I saw the creature fall into the swamp from And then different songs with different feels, you know, you can see different parts of the story. So that's how it falls into place for me personally. And that's how I can help. And then is the ball tossed back and forth between everybody in the band and the whole thing grows? Yeah. Okay. You know, some band 
members like Brent or Troy will say, I, I have an idea for this one, I have an idea for this one. You sort of take it section by section. Mm-hmm. What's happening in this song? Okay, this is what's going on. Okay. And Troy, you know, obviously was going through some really tough stuff with his wife during the whole writing and, and recording. So he was, he had a lot to say, you know. So Emperor um, Sand. Yeah, so yeah. it was important that he get to say what he wants to say, mm-hmm. you know, without any limitations of concept or story. He wanted to be in on it, and he wanted to, you know, if it's going to help, then he wants to be obviously involved. You know, he was more than willing to sort of skew his writings uh, in the direction of the storyline. Where these fragile vessels, these human Mm. beings, all of a sudden something goes wrong, somebody you love gets cancer, and it's a slap in the face, a reminder, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the last album, it, it seemed like, you know, you're one of those bands that it, it's never like, oh, it's a confessional thing, pity me for what's going, what I'm experiencing in my life. It's this this metaphor, or, you know, elaborate kind of tale that's being told, but there's real life blood and guts in behind it, it seems like. There's always a story, sort of a subtext there, and it's drawn a lot from your personal lives. The whole writing of the album and, the, and what you hear on the other end is us just trying to work through it as... The four of us are in a deep relationship where all of our DNA and every single horrible thing that's happened to us in our lives is like wrapped up in Mastodon now, you know. I don't know if it's cathartic or not, but it it gets us through the day, you know. Mm -hmm. It gets Bill through the day to go down the basement and not necessarily take his mind off of what was happening with his mother at the time, but... Unfortunately, when someone's really sick, there's not much you can do, you know. You can sit and stare at them, be sick, you know, and... Try to be as good of a caregiver as you can, but at a certain point you need to, you know, have that release, and Mastodon is the perfect thing for all of us. you can articulate it in, in talking to people, even your closest friends. There's sometimes right, yeah. you, you can't even figure out the words. Yeah. And music gives you that power. Yeah, 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 for sure. To, to, to Play process it. something yeah. you, you can't figure out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. The other prominent album in your discography where there was a really tragic kind of element to it, Crack the Sky, which involved your, you know, your sister. You know, right. Tragic tale of her suicide when she was only like 14 or something like that, right? Yeah, and I mean, you personally had a lot of involvement in in the way that album came out from a standpoint of what the songs were saying, and it was another concept album, and you know, it, but there was a sort of sense of there's a deeper story here. What was that process like, and what did you learn from it uh, in putting that piece of art sort of as a an encapsulation in some ways of what what you were going through privately, personally? I learned. 
the pros of, of outing that were much outweighed the, the cons of it, where, I've, mm. where you know, I had a couple of maybe uncouth interviewers kind of approach me, you know, and say, so your sister killed herself at 14. Tell me about that. You know, like yeah. just right out of the gate, first question, I would be like, dude, yeah. we're not there yet. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you got to buy me dinner first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. And I've gotten into some conversations with people that, you know, you walk away from it like, man, I almost wish I hadn't said anything because now there's an outpouring. But then on the other side of that, it's like, it's helping these people, you know? So I think that that's awesome. Mm -hmm. And it's gotten me involved in, you know, a couple of suicide prevention, one one that's out of Chicago called Hope for the Day, that's a suicide prevention charity. And so that's an awesome thing. And her death is like, it's one of the, major pillars of my life unfortunately it's like where everything turned upside down so mm-hmm. even if i didn't come out about it a majority of the things that i that i write about she's in it you know so mm-hmm. it's an intense thing it just always creeps in there i think about her every day Turn more from Mastodon drummer Braun Daler. He'll tell us about how he was cast in an episode of the HBO prestige drama Game of Thrones and what his experience was like. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRigatis. And this week we're talking with Braun Daler, the drummer for the metal band Mastodon. Now, Mastodon surprised some uh, some of those hardcore metal fans in 2009 by working with producer Brendan O'Brien. Horror! Uh, you know, he was working on this Crack the Sky album with them, but the guy had been known for working with Pearl Jam and Bruce Springsteen instead of heavy metal bands. But Daler says he actually helped them out because they'd wanted that classic rock sound all along. We take our influence as far as the metal stuff is concerned more from the Sabbath and the early Judas Priest stuff, you know what I mean? So we want to sound like hard rock band. That's what we want, natural drum tones. We want Marshall and Gibson. That's what we're looking for. To call those early Sabbath records produced is even a compliment they don't deserve. You can literally hear Iomi stop playing the riff and then move to the solo, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah.
but that's where we're cluing from. You know, we're we're coming off of Deep Purple and you yeah. know that mm-hmm. kind of classic rock stuff is more the vein of of heavy metal that we're informed by. You know, you mentioned the technical aspects of of being a metal band, and there's a lot of virtuosity in metal. And you guys obviously played at a fairly high level. Some musicians I talk to say they don't practice at all. The only time they ever really play is when they're with the band, like at soundcheck, and they play the shows. And at a certain point, they check out in terms of just like working on chops and stuff like that. Hmm. What's the story for you guys and you specifically, how you approach your instrument? Uh, I'm always practicing at home. Are you? I, yeah. I have a drum set in my basement. When we're home home, I go down there and play every day for at least two hours. Oh, really? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Just, just, just like plug something in in the headphones and play along with it? Or? Yeah, something like that, or just work on rudiments around the kids. I just pick one thing that I want to work on, and I just do that. Did you study, Ron? No. No. All right, so do you know the difference between a Rattamacue and a Paradiddle? <laughs> What's a Radom cue? <laughs> well, you said rudiments. Yeah, right. I, you know, I had this Mel Bay book at method book when yeah, I was Mel thirteen. Bay. You yeah. know, and you know, you realize at some point I never need to learn what a paradiddle is to play Ramones. Right. Here is the paradiddle. But the paradiddle is pretty important <laughs> for me. I use it, I use it on almost every song. Right, give us one. Give it right now. Here. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Left, left, right, one right, e left. Two, yeah. yeah. One e and two e and <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, are you saying you need to do that to keep the technical precision the way it needs to be, or are you learning new stuff? What are you What are you using these? Yeah, learning rehearsals? new stuff. I don't know. Like, I'll try. I'll pick like a, some kind of Afro-Cuban beat that I want to try to mm-hmm. learn. Try to. I feel like the best way to practice when I don't have to get ready for a tour or a show when I'm doing conditioning, whereas I, I'll go down and play for two hours and play the, all the fastest, craziest Mastodon stuff that we have, and I'll put it all together and just sweat sweat it out. You know, it's a workout. Just, yeah, it's a total workout. But nothing gets you ready for stage 100%. You know, when you're on stage and you're in front of people, for some reason, that just, it just goes up that one notch that you can't, I can't replicate in my basement. Mm-hmm. I think I'm putting everything I have into it. And then I'll get on stage and that first show back, I'll be like, I'm a little rusty. <laughs> and I'll feel it, you know, I'll t- get towards the end of the set. I'm, I don't have it 100%. I'll be like, okay, I need two shows and I'll be there. Do you worry about this? I mean, Neil Peart says he can't do it anymore, you know. And Collins, Phil Collins, Genesis, Lion Lies Down on Broadway. Yeah, yeah, my boy. Can't do it anymore. Right. You worry about this? No, not yet. Yeah, because, I mean, the guitarist can't. We see John Lee Hooker, you know, was 90, and he's sitting there, and he's playing. I know, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not fair. Well, hopefully, at the very least, I can be down... Working down at the Holiday Inn for free margaritas <laughs> and uh, pina coladas on the beach. 
dun, 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 Tiny bubbles. <laughs> we were saying there isn't a lot of fantasy in even the more fantastical storytelling on Mastodon albums, uh, you know, Leviathan. But you guys did a fantasy star turn on <laughs> Game of Thrones. <laughs> Did you watch the show before? Before oh, yeah, you were yeah, on yeah. it? Yeah, Absolutely. So you're a fan? Our lighting director and our, our front of house guy took me in the back lounge, put on the first episode of Game of Thrones, and within the first five minutes, I was like, that's Eddie from Iron Maiden. Oh, my God. <laughs> 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 Whoever is making this show is a metalhead. they got to be. Uh-huh. Years later, we played uh, a big festival in the U.K. with like Metallica and Alice in Chains. We end up running into a group of people that said that they were there filming a TV show and they were obviously had American accents and, and Brent was getting the picture taken with them and said, oh, what, you know, what TV show? And they said, oh, Game of Thrones. He's like, what? <laughs> it's our favorite show. You know, we always watch it and brings band and crew together. We used to TiVo it or whatever, have it on, on the, the box on the, the tour bus and on Sunday nights after the show, we'd all go watch the new episode together. Mm-hmm. We traded emails, kept in touch with the writer. He was a big fan of the band and... Said, you guys want to be on the show? We said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we got bit parts, you know, as Wildlings. Uh, it was really, really exciting to be there getting makeup. And I got stabbed in the stomach and my throat slit about 30 times in a row by <laughs> a, a sweet young Hungarian man. <laughs> mm, okay. All right. It was amazing to be a part of. And, you know, it's one of the biggest shows on television. So and then you were resurrected, wild. right? Because you're We were, yeah. yeah. We were on a couple seasons later. Yeah. Um. (laughs) (laughs) what next I know uh, Emperor of Sand you know you're still touring behind it right it's not that long ago but is Mastodon always looking ahead to what's next yeah we are you know it never stops you know creatively hopefully Mm -hmm. Bill's always riffing Brent's always riffing always talking about the next move I feel really lucky to have met these guys and have this relationship with them and and be the same four guys for almost 20 years now from back sitting in our van eating bologna sandwiches for weeks and sleeping on floors with and with waking up with cat litter stuck to your face we've just been through it all together and it's so awesome to just look on stage and see that it's all the same four guys we've been through it together from playing at the basement of the parasite house to the fox theater in atlanta to winning a Grammy this year, and we have an incredible relationship and bond. We're brothers, you know. I don't see any end in the near future. You paint a pretty bright picture from a creative standpoint, which is great. It seems like you stretch the boundaries pretty regularly too. You know, I remember talking to you about that song "Show Yourself" from the last record. Yeah. Where, which was like, okay, we're in kind of new territory here. Right, more yeah. of a, Almost like a pop song. Yeah. Is that kind of like within the realm of possibility for you guys going forward where you don't really see yourself? Like, we have, to, we have this sound and we have to adhere to it or we have to be somewhere near that sound in order to feel good about what we're doing? Or is it like all possibilities are open? I would say all possibilities are open. But I'd like to steer away from the poppier direction, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I dig that song and I like it it's a splashy puddle on the record that's very dense <laughs> you know what I mean and I kind of look yeah. at it in the 
It almost yeah. needed it, that it, record. It did, yeah, it needed that. And it works in, in that construct where it is. And I see it as almost a, a, a mania of sorts for the main character, you know, so... So I, I like it in that cinematic aspect. But me personally, I'd like to get weirder, you know, and stretch mm. out a little bit more and just use everything that we got, you know, mm. and and make sure that we use everything that we got, you know, before it's too late. <laughs> we have had a fantastic time talking to Bron Daler of Mastodon. Thank you, Bron. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks, man. It was great. It was of a course. lot of fun. Yeah, man. When we come back, we'll continue our 666th episode with a fitting tribute, Songs About the Devil. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. My partner is Jim DeRigatis, and this week is our 666th episode. I can't believe it, Jim. <laughs> How have we gotten away? It's a sin I... that we've gotten away with it this long. <laughs> it must be the devil's work. Yes. Uh, but in the spirit of 666, the number of the beast, we thought, hey, we're going to share some of our favorite songs about the devil. Uh, Jim, why don't you get us started? As a character, we do not endorse Satan <laughs> on this show. Well, Greg, you know, we, we have Mastodon in this show, and so I thought we had enough metal. I mean, that 9 out of 10 metal songs are about the devil, right? Mm-hmm. And, of course, blues, you know, going down to the crossroads. Right? But when I think of the devil as a literary archetype, I go back to uh, freshman and sophomore year in high school and reading Young Goodman Brown mm. by Nathaniel Hawthorne and, uh, uh, you know, Washington Irving's The Devil and Tom Walker. I think about Grill Marcus, what he called the old weird America. Mm-hmm. And I think about the country. Now, I'm a city kid, man. I don't have concrete underfoot. I get antsy. The woods creep me out because of bugs and dark and the devil is waiting in the woods. And so I said, what are the two greatest country songs ever about the devil? I'm going to start out with Loretta Lynn's The Devil Gets His Dues, 1967. Uh, What a great song. Loretta is using the devil as a threat to an errant man in her life. You know, the devil's collecting his dues, and he gets them, and you're going to pay. Well, your little playhouse is sitting on a stick of dynamite. I mean, this is what, what, you know, if you really want to threaten somebody, there's no better threat than the devil is going to get you. And the way she sings it so chipper, you're, you're convinced that he will. Uh, I also love the guitars in this song. Man, I forgot how great a song this was, and I listened to it about 10 times. Loretta Lynn, the devil devil gets his dues. One of the greatest songs ever about Satan on Sound Opinions. <laughs> well, you think you're the hottest thing a-going The way things come to you, you think you're in But one of these days, that wind's gonna start blowing You may not lose 
the big boy you won't win Cause the devil gets his dues and you'll start paying When he collects you know you've paid your debt The devil gets his dues like I've been saying You'll hurt just like you've hurt me You've read the devil's menu And you brag a lot That you just can't be hurt You're not the only one Who knows a trick or two Someday I might rub your face In the dirt Well, your little playhouse Is sitting on sticks of dynamite I might get mad Tonight and light the fuse If you come in and find out that my dog bites You'll know the devil's here collecting dues Cause the devil gets his dues and you start paying When he collects you know you've paid your debt The devil gets his dues Hurt just like you've hurt me, you can bear The great Loretta Lynn, 1967, The Devil Gets His Dues. You remember the album title, Greg? It's also wonderful. Don't come home a drinking with loving on your mind. <laughs> That's right up there with the Leuven Brothers. Satan is real. You yes. Know? I mean, yes. nothing like country music in confronting the devil. Right. I mean, you know, blues and metal. It's yeah. not just those two genres. Yeah. Country's got it. Absolutely. To see the devil show up in the uh, pop charts, though, that was a uh, that was a different story. In the '60s, it was still very taboo uh, to see that sort of thing uh, bubble up into a hit. Uh, but that was the case with the song I'm going to play here. It's called "Race with the Devil" by a band called Gun. Uh, Race with the Devil, not to be confused with Gene Vincent's 1956 mm. song, uh, Race with the Devil. Uh, Gene Vincent, the great rockabilly artist, yeah. with Cliff Gallup on guitar. That was a great song. This is a completely different song. This song <laughs> uh, proves that the devil's got all the best riffs, because this song is all about the riff. The guy who played it, who wrote the song, who sang it, Adrian Gervitz, was kind of a, a player in the in the British scene of the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, he ended up playing with people like uh, Buddy Miles and Ginger Baker and Rod Stewart. Uh, it had a number of hits over the years, but this was his biggest one. It actually climbed into the top 10 on the British charts in the late 60s, Race with the Devil. Uh, the song was later covered by a host of that new wave of British metal. Remember that? Late 70s, oh, yeah, yeah, early yeah. 80s. Girls' School, Judas Priest, they all did versions of it. Earlier, Hendrix incorporated part of it into his song Machine Gun when he performed it at the Isle of Wight. Uh, so that, that riff is known far and wide. The song's kind of silly. Uh, yeah, the de- a little bit. The, the demented laugh is kind of the hook in it. You know, the devil's laughing at us, you know. Uh, but the riff is, is what it's all about. It's gun, race with the devil on Sound Opinions.
The Gun, Race with the Devil. Jim, you've got another devil song for us on Sound Opinions. I do. You know, I, I don't think anybody in the history of popular music has sung more about the devil uh, than Johnny Cash, mm. right? The man in black just has the devil on his shoulder, on his tail, all the time. Uh, 1970, To Beat the Devil, the first song Cash recorded by uh, Chris Christopherson, who who went on to write a, a bunch of great songs for Johnny Cash. You know, uh, when Johnny uh, delivers it, um, you know, the devil can be many things. It's temptation. It is a metaphor. In this case, to beat the devil, it's it's drink, all right? Mm. Uh, it's drink and poverty. <laughs> you know, so this classic going to the crossroads, selling your soul. Uh, you know, he goes into a tavern. His thirsty wanted whiskey, my hungry needed beans. Mm. He's in bad shape, you know, and the devil says, let me see your guitar, mm. you know. So long before Charlie Daniels and the devil went down to Georgia, the, this metaphor of uh, of being seduced into playing your guitar by Satan uh, and, and, and you know, and, and, and drugs and alcohol and the wrong path. I mean, nobody, nobody is better at singing about the devil than Johnny Cash. To beat the devil on Sound Opinions. It was wintertime in Nashville, down on Music Road, and I was looking for a place to get myself out of the cold, to warm the frozen feeling that was eating at my soul, and keep the chilly wind off me and my guitar. Well, my thirsty wanted whiskey, and my hungry needed beans, but it had been a month of paydays since I'd heard that eagle scream. So with a stomach full of empty and a pocket full of dreams, I left my pride and stepped inside a bar. Actually, I guess you'd call it a tavern. Cigarette smoke to the ceiling, sawdust on the floor, friendly shadows. Well, I saw that there was just one old man that was sitting at the bar. And in the mirror I could see him checking me and my guitar. And he turned and he said, come up here, boy, and show us what you are. I said, I'm dry. He bought me a beer. Then he nodded at my guitar and he said, it's a tough life, ain't it? I just looked at him and he said, you ain't making any money, are you? I said, you've been reading my mail. <laughs> he just smiled and said, let me see that guitar. I got something you ought to hear. Then he laid it on my ear. If you waste your time of talking to the people who don't listen to the things that you are saying, who do you think's gonna hear? And if you should die explaining how the things that they complain about are things they could be changing, who do you think's gonna care? There were other lonely singers in a world turned deaf and blind Who were crucified for what they tried to show And their voices have been scattered by the swirling winds of time For the truth remains that no one wants to know Johnny Cash to Beat the Devil, 1970 Great stuff, Jim. Uh, my final uh, devil song is, is, is a harrowing one. There, there's no way to sugarcoat this. Uh, Gil Scott Heron, 
um, was the, is the artist. He, uh, he had a comeback album called uh, I'm New Here in 2010 when he was in throes of uh, alcohol and drug addiction. He was attempting to make a comeback. His voice was somewhat shot at this point. I mean, he was a great poet, songwriter, and artist, mm. late 60s, early 70s, sort of that jazzy R&B soul vibe. Uh, some stridently political music. The revolution will not be televised. That is uh, Gil Scott Heron's warning for future societies. This song is drawing on that classic Robert Johnson song, Me and the Devil Blues. That's the one where Robert Johnson meets the devil at the crossroads. That's where it all starts. Yeah, and, and it all starts there. You mentioned the, the great lineage that country music has in dealing with the devil. So does the blues. Um, Gil Scott Heron is drawing on that song for inspiration as well as his own 1970 poem, uh, The Vulture, which he incorporates into this song. So if you see the vulture come and fly in circles in your mind, remember there's no escaping, for he will follow close behind. I think it was Gil Scott Heron singing about his own life. And mm. I think he felt the devil in some ways was bedeviling him all his life, and he was fighting it off. He knew that he was, he was not long for this world. In fact, a couple of years after recording it, he was dead himself. Uh, and it was a sad life, but uh, left behind some truly powerful music. And this is one of those songs that he left behind, Me and the Devil by Gil Scott Heron on Sound Opinions. Greg Cott, Me and the Devil by the great Gil Scott Heron. Now we want to hear from you. What is your favorite song about the devil? 
call 888-859-1800 and leave a message with your favorite song about the devil and why. No backward masking required. You can also reach us on Facebook or Twitter. Greg, what's on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we are going to dig up some more buried treasures. We've got some songs that are under the mainstream radar, but we think you need to hear find every episode, all previous 665, <laughs> on soundopinions.org and subscribe to our podcast wherever you get such things. Sound Opinions has been produced by Brendan Banisak, Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, Andrew Gill, and our intern, Hannah Edgar. Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Just long enough to walden it with you any longer it would have got old. Singing Ace of Spades when Hi, this is Liz from St. Petersburg, Florida. Just wanted to thank you for introducing me to the music of Phoebe Bridgers. My husband and I have pretty been much been listening to Smoke Signals on repeat most of the weekend, and I'm eager to experience more of her music too. Definitely an artist I probably wouldn't have come across if it wasn't for your show. You, you must have been Thanks a lot. Bye. This is Mike from Edgewater calling about your Aretha show. Uh, thank you very much for that. Wow, where to begin? I saw Aretha the last time a few years ago at the Chicago Theater, and that show was so surprising. She played songs that I didn't know, and I was very taken aback by that. And in such a personal way, she played the piano for most of the show, talked to her family and friends who were in the audience. It was very intimate, warm, and I'll never forget it. Wow. Getting all choked up. I wanted to mention, I think you gave her 80s and later years short shift. I was in college in the 80s, and Aretha was a legend by then, of course, and when she started sending hits to the dance floor, it was a real lift, and I think there's some great music there, too. You know, the songs themselves may have been a little mundane, but Aretha's voice on it made them spectacular. Jump to it, Deeper Love, A Rose is Still a Rose, Love Me Right, Holding On. She really owned those songs, and she was fabulous, and dancing to them is, a, is just terrific huge loss. I'm still grieving it and thanks for putting together that show. Take care.
my name is Daniel from Louisville, Kentucky, and I listen to your Aretha show. I'm a little disappointed that you shrugged off some of her 80s stuff. I grew up in the 80s, so 80s Aretha was the first Aretha I knew, and I love Who's Zoom and Who, Freeway of Love, and one of the best duets of all time with George Michael. I knew you were waiting for me. Love the show. Thanks a lot. Hi guys, this is Eli from Crestone, Colorado, and I just listened to your show about Aretha. I wanted to tell you that I appreciate you putting that on so quickly after she died. Aretha has always meant a lot to me. Um, I cried when I read that she died. I'm just stuck on those first two albums on Atlantic, Never Loved the Man, But I Love You, and Lady Soul. When I got rid of my vinyl, I kept some that I just couldn't live without, and those are two I kept. I appreciate you guys. I appreciate your show. I'm an old dog, and you teach me some new tricks because I'm listening to some stuff I've never heard of before. So keep it up. I'll keep listening. Take care. Bye bye. No more messages. To give us your opinions on sound opinions, call our hotline 888 859 1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.